You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hello, fans of National Security Law. As Sun Tzu wrote, if his forces are united, separate them. If sovereign and subject are in accord, put division between them. Attack him where he is unprepared and appear where you are not expected. I think Putin misread this because we're now in the fourth week, basically, of conflict in Ukraine. I'm Elisa. Welcome to National Security Law Today. It's the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And of course, it's time to talk about sanctions and Russia and the efficacy of sanctions against Russia and whether we're making any progress and how long it's going to take. So, of course, we turn back to our friend of the cast, Brian Egan of Skadden Arps, a man who has served at the highest levels of both the Treasury Department and State Department. And he's a member of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. So, of course, we hyperlinked his bio in the notes. Hey, Brian, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me back, Alicia. It's great to be here. All right. Well, we're going to go back to this core national security issue you and I have talked about many times before. That is how we manage illicit finance. And I think between the two of us, we would probably agree that the driver to Putin's power and what keeps him is basically dirty money in the sense that he has these guys named kleptocrats who were given pieces of infrastructure of the Soviet Union and profited from it, often without any merit. So I'm hoping that we could talk about that today. Do you want to talk about them briefly? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll start. You know, Putin's wealth has been one of those things that almost every article that talks about this issue tries to describe his wealth. And I've seen 50 billion, 100 billion, 200 billion, 500 billion estimates. But what everything has in common is that nobody really knows where his wealth is located. And that's one of the key problems of kleptocracy or corruption more broadly. Kleptocracy is where you have an authoritarian government, which essentially steals assets from the country. It could be natural resources. It could be just cash. It could be a combination of both typically parks those assets overseas in a financial institution or some sort of hidden account, which is layers and layers removed from the kleptocrat. And so what many governments around the world try to do is to find those assets to kind of out the kleptocrats, the leaders themselves and those who are helping them, make it harder for kleptocracy to work, harder for kleptocrats to access their assets. It sounds great. It's very hard to do in practice. Proving kleptocracy is very hard. Finding the assets is also hard and tying them to the kleptocrat. And there can be legal hurdles even when assets are found to returning the funds to the people from whom those assets were stolen. So in this case, the citizens of Russia and the Soviet Union. But it's certainly an issue that's back in the press now, in particular because of Putin and Russia and also because of some of the leaks that have been made over the last year or so on this issue more broadly. And we talk about links. I think we're we're also talking about some efforts by journalistic groups to mm-hmm. gain access to things like the Panama Papers, or I think you styled them the FinCEN files at some point. <laughs> um, but let's let's talk just a bit about the sanctions that we're using right now to counter Putin, because it seems like we've pulled out a lot of tools in the toolbox. Yeah, we really have. And I think the the most remarkable part about the sanctions that have been deployed over the past month to me is the quick and close coordination that we've seen between the United States and in particular the European Union and the United Kingdom. All three of those jurisdictions have used sanctions in the past, including against Russia, 
but the amount of coordination, the quickness of the coordination is really unprecedented, I think, particularly when you look at how many rounds of sanctions there have been imposed over the last month. You know, depending on how you count, there could have been as many as 10 or 12 different rounds of sanctions that these governments have imposed against Russia and oligarchs in Russia over the past month. So to break it down at a very high level, what are we talking about when we say sanctions? First is blocking sanctions or asset freezes. And this is where a person or a company or a bank is added to a list. And once they're on the list, any assets belonging to those parties must be frozen in place by banks in the US or the EU or the UK or by others who hold those assets. And those are the most powerful sanctions in some ways. They're the most prominent sanctions, and they're referred to as freezing or blocking sanctions. And we've seen those imposed against some of the very largest banks from Russia, some of the most wealthy individuals from Russia, and a number of government elites in Russia, with the idea being we want to make it hard for those individuals and companies to access their assets. Second is something less than an asset freeze, but restrictions on doing business with companies or banks. So the largest bank in Russia, Sparebank, is currently subject to restrictions, which basically prevent them from using the U.S. financial system to do any business. No U.S. dollar transactions, no U.S. dollar banking, making it very hard for them to function moving forward. And then third, and what is most interesting to some of us sanctions nerds, is the use of export controls in a much more exotic way to try to shut down aspects of the Russian economy that create financing and funds for Putin and his allies. So the U.S. in particular is very aggressively using U.S. export controls to stop the transfer of U.S. technology and U.S. products and software to Russia in ways that are really unprecedented in terms of their reach. So when you put all those things together and you combine that with the fact that this is a US, UK, EU, Canada, Australia, Japan, South Korea effort, it's a pretty impressive package of measures. And I think it really is making things difficult for businesses in Russia to continue operating business as usual. Let's talk about the sort of diplomatic efforts. You mentioned the EU. Can you talk a little bit about the sanctions that the EU has come up with and how they fit more or less hand in glove with what we're doing? And then I'd like you to go on to note what you see this doing in terms of pushing Vladimir Putin and his oligarch cronies to stop the violent campaign. And I would add, since we had you on the podcast last time, we've also spoken to Rob Dandenberg, former CIA station chief who knows Putin well. And he does believe that the greatest threat to Putin's effort right now is going to come from within when people decide that he's not worth it anymore. You and I were just talking before the podcast, Elisa, on on one really remarkable aspect. It's kind of an anecdote from the EU that really shows how far things have come. There's a pipeline, a gas pipeline from Russia to Germany, basically called the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And Germany in particular and other countries in Northern Europe have seen this as critical to their energy future. Up until very recently, the Germans and others in that part of Europe have blocked any efforts to stop this pipeline from being constructed or used, including blocking sanctions efforts that would have targeted this pipeline. And the US has tried to go along, you know, to the extent that we thought it made sense to do so with these requests. That all flipped on a dime early after the invasion, 
where the German chancellor came out and said, we no longer support the Nord Stream 2 project. As a result, that project is now subject to full blocking sanctions in the United States. The Europeans have indicated they will no longer support the use of that pipeline. And really, things turn very quickly and in a coordinated way. And I think that coordination that we see from the EU is what's so unusual here. It's easy for us in the U.S. to poke fun at the EU. They're a bureaucracy. They're slow. In reality, they're, you know, however many economies they are, over two dozen, who have to agree on a consensus basis on any of these matters. And that takes time to build consensus. Here, the EU has come out time and again, in some ways more aggressively than the United States in imposing sanctions on Russia. And I think that's really sent a message, not only to Russia, but countries like China. They've got to really be careful on crossing you know, these widely held norms on territorial sovereignty that you know, countries like the US and EU can come together quickly to put in place some pretty significant measures in response. Second part of what you asked, Elisa, is what effect does this really have on the oligarchs? You know, the oligarchs are these rich people, rich guys, I'll call them, because I think almost all of them, if not all of them, are men who are from Russia, many of whom are close to Putin, some of whom are not. And whether these sanctions have pressured the oligarchs to take action to try to stop what's going on. I don't claim to have firsthand knowledge. What I see happening is some oligarchs have actually come out with statements either against the invasion or pleading for peace in a way that I don't think they would have done a month ago or without the threat of sanctions. Other oligarchs, I think, are trying to figure out what they can do to separate themselves from Putin in an effort to avoid sanctions. Will this have an impact on Putin himself? I I leave that to folks like Rob who know that better than me, but I think we definitely see it having an impact on the actions of some of these very wealthy Russians who are worried about the impact that sanctions will have on them and their companies. And I think Rob and probably Nick Burgess from Financial Times as well would say that the money that they make is also shared. They pay fees out to Putin directly, and that is what accounts for him having such incredible wealth. So let's move on, though, because I think One thing that is poorly understood in general is this ban from SWIFT. Now, you've mentioned this before, but SWIFT, we need an explainer. SWIFT is really a private entity, is it not? Yeah, that's right. It's called the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications. It's a mouthful, so I'm glad they go by SWIFT. But they're a Swiss-based entity. They basically have every major financial institution in the world in a network, a communications network, basically. And banks use SWIFT to transfer messages to each other to make the flow of transactions happen more quickly and smoothly. You don't have to use SWIFT to move funds, but it just so happens that most major banks in the world do use SWIFT to move funds, and there aren't any ready alternatives to SWIFT in many cases. SWIFT has been at the subject of sanctions talks in the past, most prominently with respect to Iran, where the US Congress was pushing SWIFT to cut off Iranian banks from SWIFT. And it's a big step to for SWIFT, from SWIFT's perspective, to, to take a bank out of that network. They don't like doing it. It took a while to convince them to do that in some cases in Iran. Go back to EU coordination. Here, the European Union has actually worked with SWIFT to identify banks, and the UK has as well, that SWIFT will remove from the SWIFT system. 
Several Russian banks, not all of them, but several have been identified by name. And SWIFT is in the process of taking the steps to remove them from the SWIFT communication system. Does this mean that those banks will be shut down completely? Uh, no, particularly for very large transactions. There are ways that banks can maneuver where they don't need to use SWIFT messaging to move funds. Does it make it harder for banks who are removed from SWIFT to you know, do day-to-day business? Absolutely. You know, you, you've got to figure out another, you know, kind of another modus operandi if you're not using SWIFT. And there really aren't any well-known, well-used alternatives right now. So it's kind of a, a little used or little understood sanctions tool, but one that you know, will have an impact in particular on the Russian banks that have been subject to restriction by SWIFT. But I think it's also, let me just add on to that. It is fair to say that sanctions take time. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. They are not a quick fix. Yeah. And I'm sure there's concern about that now. But the other thing that's happening is we're uh, staring down the barrel of another G20 summit. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that the Russian Federation has a seat on the G20. So why don't you uh, give us a quick explainer on what the G20 is and what it can do or might be willing to do to stop Putin's war? Sure. Yeah, that's uh, the G20. (laughs) It's also known as the Group of 20. And it's basically a grouping of 20 of the largest economies in the world, countries like the United States, Russia, you're you're absolutely right. They are a member of the G20. The UK is a member. Many major European countries are members. China is a member of the G20. India is a member of the G20. And these countries gather regularly with a summit, usually once a year, to talk about kind of some of the major financial decisions that the world has to come to together. You know, what to do about interest rates or inflation or climate change. You know, these are things that will be on the agenda of the G20. And there has been talk, including by President Biden, about trying to remove Russia from the G20. There's some precedent for this type of talk because Russia used to be part of a smaller group of countries that was called the G8 and now is called the G7 because Russia was expelled in 2014 when it invaded Crimea. So there's some precedent for these major economies kicking Russia out in response to displeasure with Russia's military activities. I think that the catch here is that the G20 is a bigger club and it's got countries like China and India and Indonesia and some others who probably aren't going to go along with a decision to remove Russia, or at least they will be very cautious in taking that decision. It's not like there's a a voting procedures, you know, it's not majority vote or anything like that to remove somebody from the G20. It's basically something that would have to be done by consensus or Russia itself could decide to unilaterally withdraw from the G20. So I think it's unlikely that in the short term, Russia would be removed from the G20. And I think they're probably going to decide to stay part of the G20, just to kind of poke their finger in the eye of some of the countries who are talking about this, and maybe President Biden in particular. I do think it will be awkward, to say the least, for Russia to show up at the next G20 ministers meeting where I think they will be largely ostracized from discussions. So this is a, you know, a club that is symbolic largely, but also you know, does talk about big policy issues. And I think it'll be interesting to watch the upcoming G20 meetings just to see how the Russian ministers are, are treated in those meetings. You know, as we're speaking, I would point out that several ministers have resigned. A couple of them haven't been seen in Russia in a while. 
<laughs> at least once left the country and it appeared he was moving from ATM and ATM to ATM <laughs> in Turkey as he withdrew some of his funds and made a public statement in opposition to the war. And then today we have a, a general who is claiming that everybody misunderstands this was just an effort to take a little bit more territory on the eastern part of Ukraine, which I think resonated about as ridiculous a claim <laughs> as you could possibly imagine. And I don't know if he's still, Putin's still hiding in a bunker in the Ural Mountains or wherever it is that he's been you know, developing bunker mentality. But I think <laughs> the next 10 days are really going to be interesting. Anyway, I'm really glad you came in. We did this short podcast today on purpose because we wanted to just get everybody back up to speed. And I have a feeling we'll be wanting to do a little bit more on this topic in the near future. So I hope you can come back and join us. Oh, I'd be glad to. Uh, yeah, I, I think this is a fast moving target. And it's one where the five minutes of technical discussion can kind of help set people on straight on what may be going on on, the, on some of these issues. Yes. Well, thank you so much. And thanks to everyone who's listening. We are going to continue to bring you fast moving issues in national security law and policy and the events that will inform what direction all those laws and policies take. Again, we don't take your attention for granted. We're glad that you came. If you could, please hit that subscribe button. You can discuss this episode with your friends, maybe over coffee. And then you're going to find over the next few weeks, we're going to switch to a very much related topic which is supply chain issues. And we're going to have some very brilliant people on during the month of April so that they can teach us things like how we can bring the semiconductor industry home now that we see that's a problem. How can we maintain a good supply of oil and natural gas in the face of a madman trying to weaponize both? So thanks again. We will see you next week. And the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will bring you even more news. Please hit that subscribe button. And if you want to communicate with us to give us some feedback, Reach out to us on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or you can also send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. And just keep in mind, everybody on this podcast is here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. 